Well, if you lived in England in the 16th century, that's the 1500s for you non-history buffs. If you lived in England in the 1500s, it made all the difference in the world for you whether the king or queen was Catholic or Protestant. Most of the time in our country, we may know what the religion of our president or some of the senators is, but it doesn't have that much impact on our daily lives, at least not like it did in the 1500s in England. Remember, in the 1500s, we just learned a few weeks ago on Reformation, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. The Reformation had just happened a few years earlier. It was still spreading throughout the continent of Europe. And so tensions between Protestants and Catholics were actually quite high in England during the middle of the 1500s. And there was a Protestant king Edward VI in England, and he died. And in 1553, after his death, his older sister, her name was Mary, came to the throne in England. Now, Mary was a Catholic, and her desire was to turn England from its Protestant uh, reality at that time and to return it to the Church of Rome and to Catholicism. And she didn't just want to To turn the nation that way, she was actually, she had the goal of purging England of the Protestant reformers who had 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 a huge impact in the country and they'd flourished under the rule of Edward. And so she was going to go after them as she was a pretty aggressive ruler and pretty committed to her Catholicism. And so during Mary's reign, 288 Protestants lost their lives, many of them key leaders. And most of them were burned at the stake for their faith. And because they believed in justification by grace through faith alone and other Protestant doctrines. They refused to recant their faith and so she she put them to death and executed them. And it's because of that, I'm sure you've probably heard of Mary's nickname, Bloody Mary. And she earned that nickname by putting, putting all of those Protestants to death. The very first man who was burned at the stake under Mary's reign was a man named John Rogers. And here's a picture of John for you. He pastored a church in Smithfield, and he played a key role in the Protestant Reformation coming to England. And so he was well-respected under Edward, but then when Edward died and Mary came to the throne, he was a targeted man. And so she went after him first. They arrested him, and the Catholic bishops tried to convince him over time to recant his faith, and of course he flatly refused to do that. So I want to read you a description of the day that John Rogers died, and this is from a little book by J.C. Ryle, uh, who was a Protestant in the 1800s, and he wrote about some of the reformers who died under Mary's reign, and here's how he described the day of John Rogers' death. On the morning of his martyrdom, he was roused hastily in his cell in Newgate and hardly allowed time to dress himself. He was then led forth to Smithfield on foot within sight of the Church of St. Sepulchre where he had preached and through the streets of the parish where he had done the work of a pastor. By the wayside stood his wife and ten children, one a baby, whom Bishop Bonner, the Roman Catholic bishop, in his diabolical cruelty had flatly refused him leave to see in prison. He just saw them, but was hardly allowed to stop, and then walked on calmly to the stake, repeating the 51st Psalm. An immense crowd lined the street and filled every available spot in Smithfield. Up to that day, men could not tell how English reformers would behave in the face of death. 
and could hardly believe that clergy and dignitaries would actually give their bodies to be burned for their religion. But when they saw John Rogers, the first martyr, walking steadily and unflinchingly into a fiery grave, the enthusiasm of the crowd knew no bounds. They rent the air with thunders of applause. Even the French ambassador wrote home a description of the scene and said that Rogers went to death, quote, as if he was walking to his wedding. By God's great mercy, he died with comparative ease. And so the first Marian martyr passed away. Now, this is one example, and it's a dramatic story, good grief, of how he lost his life for refusing to recant his faith. But the history of Christ's church is filled with those who have suffered and died for their faith. We don't often think of it this way as believers in America during this time because we have little fear of overt persecution. But the reality is, is that discipleship can be a dangerous endeavor for anyone who's a follower of Christ. And that's exactly what we're going to see this morning. Now, if you remember from two weeks ago, we talked about and discussed Mark chapter 6, verses 7 through 13, where Jesus sends his disciples out on his behalf and they go out on mission for him. And the goal is for them to preach and to perform miracles on behalf of Christ. And essentially, this was a training mission for the disciples, and Jesus was teaching them what they were going to be doing after his death, resurrection, and ascension. So go ahead and open to Mark 6 if you're not there. That's where we're going to be this morning. And if you look at verses 12 and 13 of that previous passage we looked at, you're going to see that the disciples went out on this mission. They did exactly what Christ told them to, and they were successful in the mission. Look at verse 12. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. But this doesn't tell us about the return of the disciples to Jesus. Now I want you to look down in verse 30. So skip all the way down to chapter 6 and verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. So the mission of the disciples is in chapter 6, verses 7 to 13, and then verse 30. So what happens in the middle? What's going on while they're out doing this mission? Or what does Mark insert here in the middle between when the disciples leave and when they return? Several times in the Gospel of Mark, as you're reading through it, you will see examples of stories like this called sandwich stories. That's how the commentators and theologians describe it. And what happens is Mark will start one story and then he'll break into the middle of that story with a different story and then he'll return to the other one. And he does that intentionally. And he does that because he wants you to put those two stories together in the lesson that he is in teaching you. He wants you to interpret them together, and the main point of those two stories will come out of the center story. And so you interpret the pieces of bread in light of the meat in the middle. And that's what Mark wants us to do here with this story. So what do we find in verses 14 through 29? In the middle, in, the, in that section of scripture, we find the tale of John the Baptist's death at the hands of Herod. And John the Baptist died for his faithfulness to God's word. 
And he suffered because he wouldn't back down from proclaiming exactly what God's word said in the face of power. Here's the outline of this section. You can see this this morning. The disciples' mission happens. We've already looked at that. And then the fate of John the Baptist is in the middle. And then we return back to the disciples' mission in verse 30. So here's what I think we can learn. Let me summarize this whole section for you, 7 to 30. And I think we find this in one sentence, and it's this. Living as a disciple of Jesus on mission will cost you. But it's worth it. It's totally worth it. That's what I think you see. Now, this morning, I want to study this center section here, verses 14 all the way to verse 30. But I'm not going to divide this up into uh, points or subsections like we typically do. I'm just going to tell you the story as we read through it. And the reason I'm going to do that is because this is quite a tale. It's quite a story. It's compelling. It's fascinating. It's scandalous. It's all of those things. And so I just want you to, to get into the story here. And then we're going to, after we get through it, we're going to draw some applications to our own lives from this main point here. Living as a disciple of Jesus on mission will cost you, but it is worth it. So let's start in verse 14. So following right on the heels of what we just read in verses 12 and 13, the disciples are out. They're doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing, representing Jesus. And then verse 14, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus's name had become known. Now, clearly, the disciples' mission had made quite an impact. I mean, news was spreading. The, ser- the series that we're in right now is called Kingdom Advancement. And the reason for that is because News about Jesus is spreading further and further out as his ministry goes further and further out. And so the disciples' mission is one of the ways that news about him and the gospel and the miracles all begin to spread out further and further from Galilee. And so here his name begins to go out so far that the ruler in the area, King Herod, hears of what happens. Now you can imagine that if six groups of two people We're going throughout the countryside to all these different villages, and all of them are associated with Jesus of Nazareth, and they're going throughout, and they're preaching, and they're healing and casting out demons, and this is happening all over the countryside in all these different villages. You can imagine that that would stir up some interest for sure. It would make waves. But you can see here in verse 14 that despite the fact that it's the disciples going out, look what it says. For Jesus's name had become known. It wasn't about the disciples because they were representing the Lord Jesus. And everybody knows that. They see this happening and they know these guys are associated with Christ and it all goes back to him. So when this happens, what are people saying? I mean, what's the word going around about this guy who heals and then empowers his disciples to go out and heal And preach. What are people saying? Look at the rest of verse 14 and verse 15. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. Now, there's several different opinions here about who Jesus is, but as you're looking at these, keep in mind, none of these are negative. All of these are very positive. Elijah was a revered prophet in Israel. The people loved John the Baptist. 
The people loved all the prophets. And so none of these are negative. All of these are very positive views about who Jesus is and what's happening through his ministry. People are honoring him. They're thinking highly of him. But you and I know that even as honorable as these views of Christ are, none of them are sufficient. None of them are lofty enough for who Jesus really is. Jesus is more than a prophet. He's greater than Elijah, and he's greater than John the Baptist, as we read in Mark chapter 1. That's why he can do all these things. And so news of Christ reaches Herod, and Herod makes a judgment call about who Jesus is. Look at verse 16. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Now, it's an interesting phrase, and I'm not sure that Herod actually thought that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. I think he's probably saying something like, here we go again, it's John the Baptist all over again. And we haven't heard about John the Baptist since chapter 1 of the book of Mark. At that point, we saw him preaching in the wilderness, proclaiming very boldly the news of one who would come after him. And here you read for the first time of him again in this book, and you read in verse 16, John, whom I beheaded. So now we find out that John has lost his head. So what happened? (laughs) I mean, it's a very natural question for us to ask. We haven't heard about him in a while. Now we hear about him and he's dead. He lost his head. What happened? So look at verse 17, and this is where things start to get crazy in this story. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. So a little bit of background here. Herod is the ruler over Galilee and some other regions right around there. All right. He is under the authority of the Roman Empire. So he sort of is like a vice regent under the Roman Empire, the emperor, and he rules over this particular area. Now, Herod had this huge family. His father had been a ruler in this area over actually quite a bit more land. And as I read this week about Herod's family, the family drama that they have would make the Kardashian family drama look like a group of preschoolers. It's unbelievable what goes on in their family. It's sordid, it's scandalous, it's over the top. And so what you read here in verse 17 is the tip of the iceberg, but this is scandalous enough. What happened essentially is that Herod got tired of his wife. So he divorced her, he dropped her, and he dropped her because he wanted to marry his half-brother's wife. And so he convinced his half-brother's wife to leave him and come and marry him. So she did that. She left Philip. She married Herod. And obviously, and there's a whole bunch of other circumstances that go along with this. This got Herod in quite a bit of trouble, caused a war. Unbelievable stuff happens. But obviously, this type of action is immoral, okay? Leviticus 20, 21, if a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has uncovered his brother's They shall be childless. This is pretty clear from the Old Testament. And John the Baptist knew his Old Testament. He knew what was going on. And so that's why he did what he did in verse 18. Look down there. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. 
Now, he probably said this directly to Herod's face at some point. But I think he also was proclaiming this publicly. And he was saying this over and over again as he was preaching to people. And John was a very respected religious figure in Israel. And so this was not a good public image for Herod or his wife. They were not appreciative of what was happening, particularly his wife. She's having none of it. Look at verse 19. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So she wants him dead. Herod knows John is a good man. And it's, it's so interesting how it's described in verse 20. Herod is fascinated by John. And he hears him and he listens to him. And it's like he can't quite figure him out. But he's so interested in what John has to say. And he respects him as a holy man and a righteous man. And he doesn't want to put him to death. And so he keeps him in prison. And if you know the scriptures, this sounds very familiar to the way Pilate dealt with Jesus. Pilate was a strong ruler over quite a bit of land. He knows Jesus is not worthy of death. And yet, in the face of the crowds and of opposition, he ultimately fails to do what he should have done. And he gives in to the crowd. And so there's a connection here between John the Baptist and Jesus. And it foreshadows what's going to happen in Christ's life. And you know, Jesus is closely tied to John the Baptist. I mean, remember right at the beginning, John preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John is the forerunner. He comes in advance and prepares the way for Jesus. And it's almost like the same sort of thing is happening here. And so as you're reading this, you start to get the sense that because of their close association, something like this is going to happen to Jesus down the road. And as you begin to understand that, let me just remind you that Christ's disciples have a very close association with him. And they will be treated the same way our Lord was treated. So let's see how all this comes to pass. Look at verse 21. But an opportunity, opportunity for Herodias, I think, an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. So Herod obviously was under Roman authority and leadership, and so he does a very Roman thing here, and he throws quite a birthday party for himself. And he invites all the leading men of Galilee and the wealthy men and the powerful men to come to this birthday celebration. And so it is an unbelievable party here. And it takes an interesting turn. Look at verse 22. For when Herodias's daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. Verse 23, and he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. Now, this girl, keep in mind, would have been Herod's stepdaughter. 
So it's his wife's daughter. We don't know exactly what happened here, but Herod and his all-male guests were quite pleased with the dance that she had done. And Herod promises her a very lavish gift for what she'd done. Now, if you look at verse 23, he says, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. According to Roman law, he couldn't actually do that. He couldn't give her half of his kingdom. But this is hyperbole, and it's his way of saying, I'll give you a lot. I'm going to be very, very generous to you. Look at verses 24 and through 26. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, she's ready. She obviously is holding a grudge here because she is prepared. She knows exactly what she wants. And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she, the daughter, came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. Herod is caught here between his oath and between his desire to not harm his fascination with John the Baptist and the reality that John the Baptist is a man of high character and he does not deserve this. But despite all of that, Herod caves into the crowd Clearly the opposite of John the Baptist, not a man of character for a whole host of reasons that we've seen in this story so far. But he gives in verse 27. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Now what's John's crime here? What has he done? Well, the text makes it very clear. Look back in verse 20. Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. John was an upright man. He committed no crime. What he had done is gotten on the wrong side of an immoral and angry ruler and his wife and his family, and he'd gotten on that wrong side by speaking the truth of God's word against this ruler. Now, if you're reading through Mark initially, that story seems to be way out of place. What is this doing here? Why, why is this inserted here? Is he just trying to tie up loose ends from the beginning? We haven't heard what happened to John, so here's a little bit of information and all these details about this story. And as we said in the beginning, I don't think that's what he's doing. I think Mark inserts this story here not just as a placeholder, But I think he wants us to understand that if you obey the Lord and if you go on mission and represent him, if you're tied to Jesus Christ and if you speak the truth of God's word, there is a certain amount of danger in that. There certainly was for John. It's not surprising. Look back in verse 11 of this chapter. This is what Jesus told the disciples. People will reject you. Verse 11, and if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. This is what's going to happen. This is reality. And this isn't the last time that Jesus says this in the gospel of Mark. Flip over very quickly to Mark 13. Here's this whole story about what to expect in the end times. And listen to what Jesus says. 
And I think this is true of our current age, for sure. It's always been true in the church. Verse 9, but be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial, to trial for preaching the gospel and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak. Isn't that a comfort? It's not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father, his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When we live as disciples on mission representing our king, there will be opposition. It's what's going to happen. Listen to how one author summarized this section. The fact that Mark inserts the execution of the baptizer in the context of the sending and return of the 12 on their first mission journey forces readers to consider what John's death means for discipleship and mission with Jesus. So I think you and I need to ponder for a few moments what this means for us as we live our lives as disciples of Christ, as followers of Christ. Now, first of all, I don't know that any of us are in any danger this week of losing our heads for our faith in Christ. And thank the Lord for that. I mean, we don't suffer overt persecution on a regular basis in this country because of the freedoms that we have. We're not in danger of losing our heads. But here's my question for you this morning. I mean, this is typical for Christianity Have you or I ever been in discomfort because of our discipleship? Have you ever felt a little bit awkward because of speaking the truth of God's word? Now, let me just clarify. I'm not talking about being purposefully weird or distasteful or bizarre just to show that you're distinct from the world around you. That's not what we're talking about. And scripture makes that very clear. But if you've never been uncomfortable because of your discipleship, because you're on mission for Christ, if the answer to that question is, well, no, or rarely, I mean, I guess it's happened, but rarely, then I think that we need to ponder whether we are intentionally engaging the mission that Jesus has for us. Are we actually doing what the disciples did here, representing the Lord, speaking the truth in love, and going out on mission for Jesus Christ? Discipleship involves danger. It involves discomfort. And that happens when disciples are actively engaged in the mission that Jesus has for them. Now, just get personal with you here for a few moments. I have a burden that has been developing this week a little bit, and I'm trying to to understand what's going on and think it through. And this is for you and this is for me. It's easy to come to church on Sunday mornings and to greet one another warmly, to say hi, to enjoy the fellowship that we have here. And that's as it should be. I don't, I don't want to take that away. That is a wonderful, wonderful gift from the Lord. And that should enable us to go out on mission. It's wonderful to have this fellowship of family and friends. 
But if that's all we have, if we are not intentionally going out on mission for our king, if we're not engaging unbelievers, getting to know them, having them into our homes, spending time with them, loving on them, providing for their needs where we have opportunity, treating them as good neighbors, as those that we love on behalf of Christ, if we're not sharing the gospel with them, what are we doing? We're not engaged in the mission here. We're just living this comfortable little suburban Christianity. We're not doing what Jesus has called us here to do. You and I are surrounded by people who are lost and without Christ. We're surrounded by them. I was talking to a friend this week. I had breakfast with him. Haven't seen him in a couple years. And he was telling me about um, a a pastor friend of his that he knows. And the guy is in... um, the buckle of the Bible belt right in South Carolina. And this guy's pastoring a church there. And the guy got burdened over the reality of his church being on mission for the Lord and engaging unbelievers and what they were doing. And he went to his elders and said, listen, there are 15 Southern Baptists. There are Southern Baptist church. There are 15 Southern Baptist churches within a five mile radius of our church. Why do we exist? Like, what are we doing here? Now, you and I don't have that problem. That's not true of us. There are some churches around here. That's true. There are. There's wonderful brothers doing good work around here as pastors. There are believers who are engaging the community around here. But it's not like the Bible Belt here. I'm learning that more and more having been here for eight months. It's not the Bible Belt here. There is a huge need in our area for the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in order to be a gospel witness, you have to, I have to deal with discomfort at times. We're probably not going to face danger, but we have to at least deal with discomfort at times. We have to stretch ourselves socially and spiritually to be able to go out and engage with unbelievers on a regular basis. Listen to what Paul said about his ministry. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God. That's a beautiful place to be. Who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. This is normal discipleship. We're stretched to the point where we have to rely on the Lord. And he has to come through for us as we go out on mission. That's the point the disciples were at. I mean, what are they going to do? Go out and cast out demons and heal people and preach and don't take anything with you. They had to rely on the Lord. They had to be in uncomfortable situations. This is normal discipleship on mission. And our job as is to conform the way we live to what the scripture says. And that means engaging in the mission and encountering opposition and affliction when it comes up and the Lord and not ourselves. So here's what I think all that means for us. There's a new year coming up, 2018. And I would love 
for us as a church body to seize that fresh start, that turnover of the calendar. I would love us to seize that opportunity and work together to actively engage in the mission as disciples. I would love for us to turn our attention outward to the community around us and say, what can we do to reach a small number of people for the Lord Jesus? I would love for us to see new believers come into this church next year and see them discipled. They hear the gospel for the first time. They get saved and baptized right behind me. And they start coming and learning and getting involved in a small group. I'd love that to happen in 2018. What does our mission look like here? Here's how we describe it. Woodhaven Bible Church exists to make followers of Christ who worship God, connect with one another, and serve the church and the world. What's our goal? It's to make disciples for the glory of God. And disciple making is certainly includes strengthening the believers that are here already, but it also means finding new disciples preaching the gospel to them, getting to know them, sharing the Lord with them, and seeing them come into the body here and begin to worship, connect with one another, and serve the church and the world. And they go out and make other disciples. That's what the apostles were doing. I mean, that's what they did after Jesus ascended to the Father. This is it. Made disciples who worshiped God, connected with one another, and served the church and the world. That's it. That is our mission. It's that Simple. (laughs) It's that basic. I know it's difficult, but that's what we're here to do. Let's not get caught up in all the other possibilities. Let's do what we're here to do. And I think this is it based on the Great Commission. So here's, here's what I want us to do. I want us, each person in here, to begin to think and to pray actively about what you're going to do in the new year together. What does involvement in that mission look like in the new year? And as we move forward, as we try to do this, it's not going to be perfect. We're going to face opposition. Things aren't going to go well all the time, but that's okay. God promised that that would happen. And Paul said that is the point where we rely on the Lord and not on ourselves. That's to be expected. And I'll tell you, I'm not content for my own life to sit here and watch this city go merrily on its way to destruction and the people around us. I don't want to do that. I don't want to sit here and watch that happen. We are here. We're in a strategic place. I really believe that. We have a strong church body. I believe the Lord has put us here and given us an assignment to go and to make disciples. That's what I would love to see. So let's stand up straight, stiffen the backbone, Rely on the Lord and understand that difficulty will come and engage the mission that God has for us in the new year. Let's make that a reality. Dependent fully on him because there's no other way we could do it. Let's pray. Father, we do need you every hour, Lord. We rely on you. And we want you in the new year, Lord, to put us in circumstances where we have to rely on you. There's no way we can accomplish this mission on our own. There's no way we can face any sort of opposition on our own. Just like the disciples, we have to have you. We have to be strengthened by your Holy Spirit. And that's our desire, Lord. 
So help us to feel a burden for those around us. Help us to feel a burden for your honor and your glory. And I pray that you would strengthen us for that cause in the coming weeks, coming months, and in the new year. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your goodness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.